This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And periodically we dig down into some of our favorite Wall Street Journal writing. And also we love talking anytime we get a chance about our men in uniform, the men who serve this country. And it's great when we combine both. And today, well, we're talking to one of our favorite writers who writes about these things, Mark Yost. And there was a story entitled Road to Tokyo, Pacific Theater Galleries. It's a review of the World War II Museum's newest exhibit by that same name. And if you haven't been to the museum yet in New Orleans, and it was a project of the great Stephen Ambrose. It started as the D-Day Museum. Ambrose taught at the University of New Orleans. Ambrose called New Orleans his home. Put it on your list. It's a great road trip for the family. I've been many times already with my wife by myself, and I brought my daughter for the first time this past summer, and she was mesmerized. Joining us now is the author of that piece and a Wall Street Journal contributor. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. You bet. And by the way, folks, you're listening to the theme music from the remarkable HBO series Pacific, which was a cousin of, of course, Band of Brothers. And, Mark, you write about one of the major themes of this exhibit being how different soldiers' lives in the Pacific, how different those lives in the Pacific were from those in the European theater. Talk about those differences that our boys experienced back in the 1940s. Well, the biggest difference, and and this is one of the main points that the museum curators make uh, to distinguish from the European gallery, which they have there, and that's it. It's really all about distance. If you think about it, most everything in the Pacific was um, twice as far as uh, things across the Atlantic, uh, going to France, going to Africa. Um, And the other point that they make consistently throughout the exhibit is that many of these battles were fought on basically uninhabited islands or remote islands that were only Japanese strongholds that had been built up as supply points, airfields, but prior to that had been had been pretty much uninhabited. So not only did they have to go and fight the Japanese, they had to fight the climate, they had to fight the diseases, and they had to create um, what you and I would call civilization. They had to create their own supply depots. They had to create places for the guys to go on R&R. I mean, it, you know, going to Australia was a thousand miles away. You couldn't just go to Australia like you could go to Paris or to London on R&R if you were in the European theater. So they had to, to create entertainment, they had to create civilization, and they had to create a very, very long logistics uh, supply chain. And what a difference that makes in a soldier's life. For folks who don't have uh, folks in your family who've served, uh, you know how much the boys need a break. And my goodness, it didn't sound like there was almost any way to get a break in the Pacific, or it was just more difficult, Mark? No, there, there really wasn't. It was ma- more a matter of maybe you went, uh, you know, 10 miles behind the lines where the current fighting was. Because, you know, we, we forget that, you know, you hear, you, you remember these names, Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, um, places like that. And we forget that these battles in the Pacific sometimes went on for months. Um, it took uh, MacArthur... Um, to go through New Guinea uh, pretty much about 18 months of slogging through the jungle. And you just can't put men into combat like that every day, 
that kind of intense combat uh, day after day. You have to have relief. You have to have some downtime. And but there was really nowhere for them to go. Yep. And and you know it's interesting. And we were talking about this just before you came on. I think Americans know so much more about the European battlefield than they do about the Pacific. In the end, we know some trigger points, but I don't think in our heads we know the landscape. We've I think there've just been so many more movies about Europe. Why do you why do you think that is, Mark? Well, I think it's because of our European ancestry and and because it was much closer. Um, you know, and I, I specifically mentioned MacArthur and the army in the Pacific because when most people think of the Pacific, they think of the Marines. And for the most part, it was the Marines' war. It was the Marines' amphibious landing and taking places like Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima. But we have to also remember that there was also an army contingent to this, a large army contingent that battled on New Britain and the New Guinea and other places. And so the Army played a rather big role in the Pacific campaign, but that's often overshadowed by what we remember as the role of the Marine Corps. You bet. How does the, how does the museum handle what I think is a, a hot-button issue, Mark? And as we'll proceed in this interview, we'll, we'll walk through that exhibit with you because we'd really like to get, get the folks listening to have a real feel for what they, they would be seeing at the World War II Museum. And by the way, they have terrific online support. Uh, so if you're listening, you can go to the World War II Museum website, and it's really remarkable. But, uh, you know, walk us, walk us through that, if you could, Mark. Uh, you know, what got, us, what got us in there to begin with? How did, we, how did we enter Japan? Where did the soldiers go? We all know the D-Day story. We know that. We know why. We know how. We know the buildup to it. We've seen the pictures. Talk about... The, the entire Pacific theater, how does it start? Where do we go and where do we end up? And how do our soldiers get deployed? Uh, just about a minute and a half right now, and then we'll come back for another nice long segment. Well, the, the exhibit starts with um, uh, the Pacific itself and the ocean and the naval role, the, the role that the Navy played in transporting troops over these vast distances. And it sort of opens up on a aircraft, the bridge of an aircraft carrier, and there's various films about um, Pearl Harbor, of course, which was what got us into the War of the Pacific, then, Mid uh, then Midway, which was the big battle um, after Pearl Harbor when we struck back at the Japanese. And then um, it sort of transitions from there, from the naval portion of the, the campaign to actually the marine island hopping campaign. Hold it right there, Mark. Hold that thought right there. And I think what's so amazing about this is you're actually, when you enter this museum, you're entering as the soldier. And I'm glad you described it the way you did, because that's what I recall, too. Unlike any museum I've ever experienced, you experience as if you were one of the people going into battle as best we could imagine what that might be like. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Mark Yost who's a remarkable writer with the Wall Street Journal. We're talking about the World War II Museum and its new exhibit on the Pacific. This is Lee Habib. We'll be back with more. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're talking about the World War II Museum in New Orleans and their remarkable new exhibit, Road to Tokyo, Pacific Theater Galleries. And Mark, Mark Yost wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal recently. And he's on the air. And again, Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You bet. Let's talk about some of the artifacts in the museum, Mark. It's the big ones. It's the small ones. They tell a story. Talk about the ones that you were most impressed by. Well, as you mentioned earlier, um, they do try to personalize the exhibit. And what they do is, is both with the European theater and the Pacific theater, you start out as the visitor and you get a dog tag. And that dog tag is connected to a real-life person whose real-life story is in the archives of the World War II Museum. And as you walk through that person's dog tag, you touch certain spots, and when you get to a, to a battle that they were in, you can read a portion of their diary or hear a personal interview with them um, uh, about what their experience was like, where they went to basic training, where they were transferred next, what kind of ship they were on, what kind of unit they were in. So that, that's what really personalizes all this, because as you mentioned earlier, we all kind of know the highlights, uh, or at least we should, if we went to public school. And um, uh, so we, we know uh, names like Bastogne and Iwo Jima and Tokyo and the Philippines. And, and we know those things, but, but we often forget the human side of it. And that's really what this museum does really well, is connects you to the human side of it. So, for instance, you get to read the, in, in the Pacific galleries, you get to read the diary of a young lieutenant in the Navy who was stationed aboard a ship and then three months later was transferred and that ship and most of his shipmates, about 340 of them, were sunk off the Battle of the Philippines. And so that's a point in history. It's a big battle, but then we understand what that sailor, what that naval officer went through and how he must have felt to feel, God, I was just on that ship, and now all my friends are dead. What, you know, and, and, and the kind of feelings that he has after that. And that's, I think that's what I came away with. I did, uh, I did the same thing over the summer, and those dog tags, I think, are what really brought my little girl through it. Um, but it was remarkable. It's what brought me through it, too. No one's too old to not have anything personalized, and it, bring, it just brings the history alive. And... Uh, Tell us about the solemn gallery dedicated to the end of the war. Well, it's they do treat the uh, they do um, uh, talk about the atomic bomb or the atomic bombs and our decision to drop the the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But they also put it in the context of because there's still a debate in in some circles about whether it was the right thing to do, and they really take a. Uh, the time to present the whole argument and the whole, all the facts that led up to Truman making the decision to drop the atomic bombs. One of them being that the, the casualty estimates for an invasion of mainland Japan was somewhere between a million and a million and a half casualties. And that's, that's just on the Allied side. Um, they also take point out that prior to dropping the atomic bombs, we had been firebombing Tokyo cities because they were mostly made of wood and that more people were actually killed, more civilians killed in the firebombings prior to the dropping of the atomic bombs than we killed with both atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
But they also make the point that, that the military was very much in charge of the wartime decisions in Japan. And even after we dropped the first atomic bomb and we gave them an opportunity to surrender, they, the military side continued to say no, and that's when we dropped the second atomic bomb. You know, when I had the pleasure of going there and getting a personalized tour from uh, one of the historians, uh, the key lead historian there, and he was talking to me about the treatment of POWs, uh, Americans in particular, uh, but the Aussies and, and the Allies in general. And he was talking about the comparison between those GIs held captive by the Germans and those held captive uh, by the Japanese. And my goodness, Mark, it was staggering. It, it, it was, Lee. It was, and I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, but I want to say something like, only 3% of the prisoners, once captured alive by the Germans, died in captivity. The mortality rate for the Japanese was somewhere upwards of 70%. And the Japanese did not sign the Geneva Conventions. They refused to sign the Geneva Conventions, which dictated treatment of prisoners of war. And not only was it the Allies that the Japanese captured, but as we remember, the Japanese were particularly brutal to the peoples they conquered. We, you know, we often forget that, yes, it was the Americans versus the Japanese, the British versus the Japanese, but in the middle of all this were these civilians who had at first been conquered by the Japanese and then liberated by us. And the Japanese were quite, quite brutal to the civilian populations that they, they conquered. For example, when we took back the Philippines, and it was clear that Japan was not going to be able to hold the Philippines, rather than just retreat out of the Philippines, they stopped and took the time to slaughter, to murder, 100,000 Filipino civilians for nothing else than, than the mere fact that they didn't like the Filipinos, and the Filipinos were our allies. Some of them, uh, and, there, and there's personal stories, as you read there, about some of the great heroics of the Filipinos, and the other indigenous peoples who allied with us and saved our pilots, saved our, our troops that were shot down, and worked with us in our intelligence network there. And um, so, yes, the, the treatment of prisoners of war in the Pacific was markedly different than the treatment of prisoners of war in Europe. And I think that, in the end, had to factor into the overall gross calculation and difficult decision to drop these atomic bombs. And I'm just so glad, and I guess you were too, Mark, to see this entire story contextualized, if you recall, and I forget how long ago it was, but do you remember the brouhaha over what happened with the Smithsonian's exhibit uh, with the Enola Gay? Yes, yes, with the Enola Gay, and and they and um, it was quite a different uh, tenor to the exhibit the, at the Smithsonian. They really kind of uh, put the blame on the Americans and said, you know, we we really didn't have to do this, and. And, 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 and we did. If, and, and, and if you look at the Pacific Galleries and you read the books that have been written and you, you, you visit this museum, you come away with uh, uh, not only is the gallery solemn, as you said, but um, it's very thorough in going through all the reasons as to why we felt it necessary to drop the two atomic bombs. And I think um, it's so uh, important to tell that, that history and get it right. I mean, in the end, how, how a country treats its PO, POWs uh, is a reflection of almost everything about the nature of their characters and even their civilization at the time, Mark. Well, that's true. And, um, and it's important to remember that um, 
you know, the entire Japanese population was conscripted at the start of the war. I mean, everyone was involved in the war effort. Japan was a small country. Um, they invaded China because they needed natural resources to fuel their and fund their war machine. And the entire country was part of the war effort. Now, there, there were people who, were, who wanted to give up towards the end of the war, particularly the political class, but the military class was in charge, and they were the ones who decided not to um, surrender after the first atomic bomb. You know, and we should also remember that the Japanese people had been so brainwashed by uh, Japanese propaganda about our barbarity um, that they claimed was our barbarity that, you know, when we invaded Okinawa, women were jumping off of cliffs with their children to kill themselves rather than be captured by the evil Americans. And, of course, our treatment, because we had signed the Geneva Convention, our treatment of their prisoners was much, much better than the Japanese treatment of Allied prisoners. You bet. And if there's a takeaway, uh, Mark, one takeaway, you got about 45 seconds for the folks listening about why they need to get, you know, get, get over to the World War II Museum in New Orleans, what would that be? Well, I think it's important history to remember, and I think it's important to remember, um, despite all our shortcomings, despite, despite all our differences, all the good that we've done in the world um, in, this, in the name of freedom and democracy and protecting the rights of other people. And uh, if there was ever a just and a good war, this was it, and this tells that story. Well, thank you, Mark Yost. It's the World War II Museum. It's their latest exhibit, Road to Tokyo, Pacific Theater Galleries, and Mark, you couldn't have said it better. Well, let's face it, we liberated the Germans from the Nazis, and we ended up liberating the Japanese people. And look at Japan today. And but for our efforts there, what a different country that might be, and what a different world we'd be living in. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Thank you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. More when we come back after this. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever, and that's following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 12th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. The Corps of Discovery almost came to bloodshed twice with the Teton suit, and yet they got past them. And as they head up the Missouri River, they almost immediately encounter yet another Indian tribe. This one, the Arikaras, a tribe who had been humbled as of late. 
Just the previous year, they had 18 villages. And now, in 1804, they only had three. It was a smallpox epidemic. And the Tetons' aggression surely didn't help either. And so, when Lewis and Clark rolled into town, the Arikaras treated them, well... Let's hear it from William Clark, recounting their chief's speech. My fathers, my heart is gladder than it ever was before to see my fathers. If you want the road open, no one can prevent it. It will always be open for you. Can you think anyone dare put their hands on your rope? No, not one dare. This is one exuberant chief, and one who wasn't going to let there be any doubt that they were different than those Tetons who did try to close the river to them and grab their ropes. But wait a minute, how did this chief even know about their nasty experience anyway? They just left the Tetons. The news had traveled from Teton Siouxland to Arikara land, just how it traveled we don't know, but we do know that Indians were inveterate travelers and, the, and that there were long and interesting chains of communication up and down the Missouri River and throughout the American West and that, and that the news always traveled faster than this group of 50 or so explorers. We're listening to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical. We proceeded on. So when they do get to the, the Arikara, the Arikara have realized that these Americans, these strangers, are not to be trifled with, that they have a will, and they are not afraid to assert themselves, and that they, that even the hegemon, the aggressive, pompous Sioux, the Sioux had a reputation of being sort of the, the lords of the Missouri, and haughty, aggressive lords of that, of the Arikara, who are at least much nicer, generally speaking, have heard that if the Sioux were overawed by these strangers, these must be very, very powerful people. And so their view was, we're, we're probably going to be a lot better off if we just cooperate and try to get what advantage we can from your presence here, but we are not going to have a confrontation with you. We probably wouldn't have a confrontation with you if we were at full strength, but we're certainly not going to have a confrontation with you in this severely reduced status that we now have. However, things overall were actually pretty lighthearted with these Arikara, and especially when it came to them seeing Clark's slave, at least on the very surface level. This nation never saw a black man before. York is one of the three or four most fascinating figures in this entire story because most Indians had never seen an African-American before. And so he was exotic, and no one knew quite what to make of him because people couldn't quite believe that there were black-skinned people in the world. We can't ever have this experience because from first consciousness, we know of the variety of races of humankind and ethnicities and skin colors and so on. But imagine if you saw a black person for the first time and had no cultural basis with which to absorb that news. The Indians, much astonished. That's where this was. And York was a big man. Clark talks about his size. 
My black servant did not lose the opportunity to show his powers, strength. People were always astonished at how agile and nimble he was given the, his, his sheer bulk. All flocked around him and examined him from top to toe. And Clark was not afraid to play games with this in a certain way. And so he frequently misrepresented York and said he was a bear that had been tamed or that he was some sort of a savage that they had captured. He didn't say, as an Enlightenment figure would, well, we now know that there are a variety of different races of humankind and one of them originates from Africa. And by the way, these people are enslaved back where we come from and, and are very deeply subordinate to us in every way. That's what you should know about him. Clark instead played kind of race games, mythic games, and, and played this up, and York apparently did too. He carried on the joke. York would roar, and children would scream and hide behind their mother's skirts. Made himself more terrible, in their view, than I wished him to do. And pretend that he was a semi-tamed wild animal. Telling them that before I caught him, he was wild and lived upon people. And so when we look at this from a 21st century perspective, we can be amused by it to a certain extent, but we're mostly appalled by it, that one of the ways to dehumanize a black person is to treat him as a minstrel figure. And he was treated by Clark in many respects as a minstrel figure. He became sort of a sexual athlete. They keep talking about how popular he was with the tawny damsels. And yet, in the Corps of Discovery's journals, there's not one single mention of York having sexual encounters with the Indians. Perhaps they didn't think it appropriate to include. But apparently, four years after the expedition, Clark told the tale to Nicholas Biddle, who was preparing their official report for the nation. And in his recounting, an Arikara warrior invited York into his Earth Lodge offered him his wife, and then stood watch at the lodge door while York had sexual contact with her. The warrior even sent away one of York's colleagues who came in search of him. They were not to be interrupted. Biddle's paraphrased notes went on to say, the black man York participated largely in these favors, for instead of inspiring any prejudice, his colors seemed to procure him additional advantages from the Indians. And Clark would use York's advantage to the Corps' advantage. To a certain degree, they sort of pimped him in this way and used his exotic skin color and size as a as a cultural advantage in their encounters with native peoples. And it doesn't really sit too cheerfully with us as we view it, knowing what we know about the long, tragic history uh, between Caucasians and African-Americans in the course of our national history. But at the time, Clark was glad to take what advantages he could of this. And York appears to have had a, a really good sense of humor. And he played along. And probably he was pleased with the centrality it gave him. He got a prominence that he could never, ever, ever, ever have had in Kentucky or Virginia. Suddenly, he's a central figure, and people are interested in him, and people are attracted to him. And they want to know about him, and they assume that he has some special power, some medicine. And they like him as a potential 
diversification of their gene pool, and so they're incorporating York's semen into the wombs of, of their women. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the most epic road trip ever, Lewis and Clark's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to episode 12 of our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. When we left off, the Arikara Indians were utterly fascinated by Clark's slave, York. The Indians might have been gung-ho about York's semen, but I don't think Clark was gung-ho about everything that went down. Reading his journal closely, it appears that he's almost embarrassed by York, making it clear to the Indians the reality of he, this man, being the slave of another man. Clark wrote that York, quote, made himself more terrible than I wished him to, telling them before I caught him he was wild and lived among people. This is a vivid description, and Clark writes of it, at least in my amateur reading of the passage, not as a man who was unabashed about the institution of slavery, would. It's a very complex set of things that are going on here, so let's try to unpack it. Clark is a Virginian Kentuckian, and as a white member of the Virginia plantation gentry, he would have a certain type of attitude towards African-Americans or slaves. It would largely be one of cultural superiority, cultural contempt. We don't know York's last name, but we know Lewis's first and last name and Clark's first and last name and uh, Ordway's first and last name, but we only have one name for Chicago and only one name for York. That tells you something about who controls names, controls the destiny of a people. And white people often called their slaves Jupiter or Zeus or Apollo and so on. And so there's something kind of cruelly ironic about that to name a field slave after the most powerful of the Greek gods, Zeus, or the most gifted of the Greek goddesses, Athena. They did this routinely and and almost um, universally slaves were known by a single name rather than the binomials that their masters had. And so York has an attitude towards Clark. Uh, He knows that he's his master. He's probably long since accepted this. There probably isn't much cultural tension to work out between them. Everybody knows his place. Clark knows his place. York knows his place. But when York has to explain himself through very weak translation systems, I mean, he can never speak English to the Arikara. This has to go through a very complex chain of interpretation and translation. But he may have said... Well, here's the deal. He owns me, or I'm his slave, or he captured me. I mean, we don't know what he said. He might have been playing games, 
or he might have been explaining himself, thinking he was trying to explain to a rudimentary people in a rudimentary language chain his status. Whatever we know is that Clark was a little embarrassed by this, and he, and he said he had to kind of stop that. He had to kind of put an end to some of that because he didn't want to misrepresent the actual relationship. But how do you accurately represent that relationship? In other words, he doesn't want York to pretend that he was a bear that was captured and tamed by Clark, because that would be cultural misunderstanding. But how do you say, he's a human being, I'm a human being, I own him, I can whip him, I can kill him, I can breed him, I can separate him from his family, I can make him do all the most menial work. Uh, He has no rights that I'm bound to respect. How do you explain that? That's just as much of a whopper from the point of view of someone looking on from Jupiter uh, or from a universal human rights perspective, as is the story that York himself seems to have been perpetuating. And so what's the corrective that Clark wants to give? He's, He's not a bear. He's fully human, but I own him and I can make him do my bidding. Uh, He did not volunteer for this expedition. I brought him along as my valet and my personal servant. Now, Indians understand slavery. There is slavery in the Indian world. It works not by racial lines, but more by tribal and sometimes gender lines. But all I'm trying to do is to suggest how incredibly complex this set of exchanges are. And for a very long time in Lewis and Clark studies, they were regarded as these moments of comic relief. In North Dakota, York freezes his penis, and that's kind of a joke. And so for a long time, the Lewis and Clark world regarded this as great fun. And since the 1960s, we've gotten a lot more mature and sophisticated about these things, and now we look on this as way more complicated and in many respects tragic. And so my point is that we have to really be careful when we look at these stories not to be too cheerful about them because... The role of cultural misunderstanding is huge, and even the story that Clark wanted to tell by way of corrective was not a story that probably he was willing to tell, because it's a story that would be hard to understand for a people who regard York not as a deep subordinate, but as somehow the most exotic and interesting member of the expedition. And it wasn't the only thing about the core of discovery that these Arikaras would find exotic. And this next one was of the less pleasurable form. 13th of October. One man, John Newman, confined for mutinous expressions. We formed a court-martial to try Newman. They sentenced him 75 lashes and banishment from the party. 14th of October, we set out in the rain, which continued all day. After dinner, executed the sentence of the court-martial, so far as giving the corporal punishment on Newman, which caused the Indian chief to cry, until the thing was explained to him. He observed that examples were necessary, and that he himself had made them by death. But his nation never whipped, even their children, from their birth. happened was that a private by the name of John Newman apparently mouthed off and said things that Lewis Clark thought were mutinous, that they were intolerable expressions of insubordination, and that this had to be singled out, and Newman had to be severely punished, that this was not just sneaking into the liquor supply or 
mouthing off in a small way that this was a very severe challenge to the military discipline and order of the expedition and that they were going to have to make a big thing out of this. And so then they tied him to a tree on a sandbar in the middle of the Missouri River and beat him severely, whipped him. And Arkita Narshar, the Tuni, the Arikara leader who's with them, cries out and says, no, you know, don't do that. Better to kill him than to humiliate him this way. We don't, we don't hit our children. We don't hit anybody. They tended to let their children learn by making mistakes. So, you know, we prevent our child from putting his tongue or her tongue on the outlet or on a hot stove. And so it seems absurd to us to hear, well, we would never whip a guy, but we'd kill him if we had to. Their view was that's, that's less humiliating, that's less undignified, that if you have to kill him, you kill him. But you just do it. You just you do it and get it over with. But you don't you don't humiliate anyone. That humiliation is counterproductive and cruel thing to do. Now, of course, there were tortures. And, I mean, one would, would, shouldn't generalize too severely about this. But but in every case when Lewis and Clark had to really beat up one of their men, and there was an Indian leader looking on, they protested. And then Lewis and Clark had to explain how civilized people behave. It always strikes me as a great irony that the civilized people are beating the living daylights out of one of their men, and the savages are saying, that's not humane. I love these moments in the expedition where there's a reversal of the lens, where culture A holds up a mirror to culture B, culture B makes it clear that they find what culture A is doing distasteful or barbaric. Every time there's one of these mirrors, it's a chance for us to rethink ourselves. And actually, this is the purpose of travel, that we travel in order to see other ways that humans go about their business, mating, marriage, uh, their economic distribution systems, lodging, clothing, gender roles, etc., parent-child. We go on these trips and we say, look how weirdly the Russians do this, or look how strangely the, the Portuguese do this, and vice versa. And so whenever there's a mirror like this that's held up at any point in the expedition, I, I pay special attention to it. And I, of course, I always ask myself, are the people reporting this, which are invariably white men? I mean, York wasn't keeping a diary. Chicago wasn't keeping a diary. Are the people who are reporting this reporting it accurately? Or if, if you were a third party looking at this, would you have a different way of reporting it? And if you were the Native American in this story, and you were reporting the incident, how would it get described or written up? But these mirrors are absolutely valuable to us, and they reveal that it doesn't really do you much good to create these social hierarchies because they ultimately break down in the face of these kind of examples. So when Lewis and Clark routinely eat dog, the Nez Perce regard that as the worst sort of savagery and barbarism. When Indians cut their fingers off to to mourn for a dead person, Lewis and Clark regard that as barbarous and, and savage. So the cultures wind up being mutually bewildered by each other in some ways. And there isn't necessarily a universal hierarchy that makes white people the superior. This reversal of cultural lenses and expectations would happen one more time in this episode two. Here's William Clark. The Arikara are not fond of spiritous liquors, nor do they appear to be fond of receiving any. 
They say we are no friends, or we would not give them what makes them fools. And great job on that, Alex. And we thank always Clay Jenkinson for his great work here. What a story, what storytelling. You can find out more about Clay and the work he does. ClayJenkinson.com He's the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, We Proceeded On. The Lewis and Clark Story. Here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch the first 11. We've got 12 now, and we're going to keep on going. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for political talk, try somewhere else. Hot Talk, another channel. But if you're looking for stories, that's what we do here on Our American Stories. And recently, our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, brought us a very strange report about a very strange law in the state of Wisconsin. And we like to report on what's going on in the states. You won't hear a lot of D.C. and New York and L.A. talk here. And there's a reason for that. And by the way, those cities are filled with people who are from everywhere else, too. So it was about time we started talking about what's going on in the large swath of this country called flyover country. Well, it was so strange, we felt compelled to do a second installment. And here's Alex. Last week, we heard about some strange news reports like this one. Curiosity leads to large crowds in Mobile's Crichton community, many of you bringing binoculars, camcorders, even camera phones to take pictures. To me, it looked like a leprechaun to me. I got to do look up in the tree. Who else in the leprechaun say yeah? yeah! Eyewitnesses say the leprechaun only comes out at night. If you shine a light in its direction, it suddenly disappears. And then, the strangest one of them all. Low prices are part of the Meyer business model, but are they too low? The company says it's never encountered this type of situation in any other state where it operates. Low prices that are too low? Our brains and our wallets were so unsettled that we had to find out what on earth was going on here and whether we were still even on the planet Earth. And so we asked an expert, the president of a think tank called the McIver Institute. And more importantly, Brett Healy is a Wisconsin resident and expert shopper. Wisconsin's minimum markup law is a relic from the distant past. It was originally passed back in 1939, and essentially the law makes it illegal for retailers and wholesalers to sell merchandise at a discount. But it's not just Meyer and their customers who were affected. Today, we hear about Walmart. We did an analysis of Walmart flyers from Milwaukee, Chicago, and Minneapolis during the back-to-school days when so many retailers are offering low prices uh, in an attempt to convince you to come to their store to buy your back-to-school supplies. And what we found was that the minimum markup law in Wisconsin is having a real impact on Wisconsinites, and it's, it's a costly one. Elmer Glue Sticks in Chicago 
went for 50 cents a pop during the back to school sales in Milwaukee because of the minimum markup law. That glue, same glue stick had to be sold for a dollar twenty-five. So that's a hundred and fifty percent increase, uh, thanks to the minimum markup law. We saw the same sort of prices for other items like markers and notebooks. In each of these situations, you're seeing a fifty to seventy percent markup on the cost of back to school supplies. Oh, back to school, back to school, to prove to dad that I'm not a fool. I got my lunch packed up, my boots tied tight. I hope I don't get in a fight. He was pretty somber there, but Adam Sandler got really riled up when we told him about his prescription drugs. Walmart has a very popular uh, generic prescription drug program where they sell for $4, 350 different drugs. Uh, in Wisconsin, however, they're not able to sell all of those drugs at that $4 price. All right! Because of the minimum markup loss, a certain number of, of the drugs here in Wisconsin are required to be sold at $8. Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday! Which is a 100% increase over what people in other states are getting their drugs for. You blew it! In this area alone, Wisconsinites are being charged up to $35 million more a year for prescription drugs. Will you give me a break one time? This isn't some esoteric debate in ivory towers. This is a, a, a public policy issue that has an impact on real Wisconsinites, and it's costing them big money out of their checkbooks. Ah! You sick! You sick! Why would you do that? Adam Sandler, he speaks and he screams... Do you understand me? On behalf of the rest of us, Walmart is now closing four locations in the state of Wisconsin. The state's minimum markup law may have had something to do with it. To what degree, we'll never know. And yet those most affected by the law might not even be the big retailers like Walmart or Meyer, or even Wisconsin consumers. It might be the very small businesses who claim they need the law to protect their higher profit margins. With the advance of the Internet and uh, people becoming more and more comfortable purchasing their products through the Internet, people are going to turn to the Internet more and more to get the lowest prices. In the age of the Internet, fewer folks will go to these mom-and-pop shops with prices that they know are higher. And we won't because of the minimum markup law. Families like Brett's know that they can often get better prices for the very same goods online. My family is a perfect example of that. My wife loves Walmart.com. We get a box every two or three days at the house through the mail from Walmart.com of the everyday household products that we use the best price possible. The mom and pop shops, the Myers, the Walmarts all should be given a chance to compete freely, to fight to be the best they can be in the marketplace. And as consumers, for us to spend our own money freely. If more Wisconsinites knew about the minimum markup law and knew that there was bureaucrats being paid with their tax dollars whose sole job is to prevent them from getting the best price possible on their products, I think they'd be outraged. And so I think the more we talk about this issue, uh, the more and more people are going to wake up and demand that this antiquated 1939 law be changed and hopefully we can unleash the true power of competition here in Wisconsin and do away with the minimum markup law. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. 
Great job on that, Alex, and you can't make it up. And, and by the way, Walmart, I just looked it up because it's an amazing number. They save the average American family $2,500 a year with their discounts. You know, and in some places, folks, that's real money. Like in my household and everyone here at this show. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We bring you the kind of stories that affect your pocketbook, the kind of stories that affect your lives. And you can see or hear all of it on OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after this. This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to music to sports and, of course, history. We love talking about history, but we also love talking to Heidi Mitchell at the Wall Street Journal because we love her regular feature there, The Burning Question. And this last burning question, what's the best way to take an afternoon nap, had us all puzzling. And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, Heidi, begin begin with things simple. Are you a napper? Uh, so there are three types of people. There's those who can just fall asleep, like on a train standing up. There's people who, who like to take a nap and can take a nap. And then there's people like me who say there's just no scenario in which I could fall asleep during the day. <laughs> yeah, you're my wife. She can't ever fall asleep. I, my wife says I'm not a napper. I'm a narcoleptic. I can fall asleep. <laughs> I can just dead fall asleep anywhere when I'm tired. So I don't know yeah. that I'm a napper. I just I just fall asleep. So I fall in that first category. Tell us about who you talk to about this thing called napping, Heidi. So I talked to a guy called David Dingis, who is a professor at Penn at the Perlman School of Medicine. He's written a book on this stuff. He's a, a real expert, and he was really deep in the weeds. It was a great conversation. He has lots of um, thoughts on your chronobiological clock and 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 the medical aspects of napping, um, and also coffee, which are one of our other favorite subjects at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so yeah, he had a lot, a lot to say. Um, he's a big advocate of naps, as we all should be, it turns out. And he said something about naps being either voluntary or involuntary. What's the difference between the two of those? And also, what did he have to say about sleep more generally? I mean, oh, do we need naps because we're not getting enough sleep? Or do we need naps so, in addition to the sleep we should already have? So there's a couple things. Is I mean, most of us in the in the modern world, we tend to be sleep deprived. We're supposed to get, you know, it varies between seven and ten hours, depending on which doctor you ask. But most of us aren't building in the seven hours of sleep. That means getting into bed, you know, a half an hour before you go to sleep, right? So you get the full seven hours of sleep. Um, and most of us just don't have that kind of time. So we're we're sleep deprived. We build up the sleep debt. We're tired, and so a nap can alleviate that. Even a short nap can alleviate that. So if you're super-duper um, sleep-deprived, you will, rather than taking off your clothes and getting into bed and, and building a nap into your day, you'll have what's called an involuntary nap, and you'll just fall asleep at your desk or on the train or while driving your car, God forbid. Um, so, you know, you want to try and avoid sleep debt for sure. That's, like, the main thing. 
But then also there's this genetic component, which we can get to later, um, which is not well understood, but it appears as though we are programmed evolutionarily to want to nap kind of after lunch at the height of the heat. Talk about that genetic component. Let's talk about that right now, Heidi. So the theory is that, you know, at the height of the day when, you know, most of civilization evolved around the equator where it's super hot during the day, the animals are not out there napping. So it's a safe time to go take a break. Um, so, so there seems to be this window after lunch, before dinner, there's a question of where exactly it falls, but where your, your biological, your evolutionary clock wants you to just chill out, which is sort of why at four o'clock we all need a cup of coffee, right? We get yep. tired or sugar, you know, we need something to boost us. So, you know, they're not totally sure why, but the thinking is that, yeah, during, for most of humanity, you know, those were safe hours to sleep and you couldn't hunt and you couldn't really forage. It was really hot. And so it was a good time to sleep. And then when it got dark, you went to sleep. And when it got light, you woke up. That makes complete sense. And any of us who spend time when we're on vacations, we've been to the beach all day. I mean, we, we know that that cycle kicks in hard yeah, at, exactly. at four o'clock. Hot, yeah. Hot, you fall asleep. And, and sometimes you wake up if you, if you were awoken by an alarm or you didn't get, you didn't catch up all of your sleep debt and fill your sleep tank all the way, um, you might feel a little bit groggy. And so a lot of people don't like that, which is why a lot of people choose not to nap because they don't feel great when they wake up. They feel like they're not a hundred percent. So this is where coffee comes in. Yep, but, yep. uh, but a lot of people will avoid a nap because they don't like that groggy feeling. They just don't feel like they can perform. Right. And so how exactly do we doze off? Cause this, I thought was the most interesting part of the piece. I know, right? So fascinating. So it's very biological. So your muscles start to relax. So let's say you're, you're standing up on a train holding onto the bar in the middle there. So then your arms start to lose their, um, control and they relax and then your hands relax and then your eyelids go and then your neck goes right so then your head falls over and then you jerk up okay so this is terrible because your brain does not go into um a good deep sleep and you're just it's almost like a disturbed night of sleep you're just like falling and rising and falling and rising you can imagine how it does kind of feel amazing though that feeling of falling into a deep sleep when you're not supposed to there's some some like guilt, delicious guilt built into that, but it's not, it's not going to give you the replenish your sleep debt the way that a voluntary nap where you're laying down is going to, it's going to, it's not going to do that for you. Well, I love the part here where you say that triggers the part of your brain that feels you're falling. That's of course when the neck goes, which wakes you up. I mean, how many times yeah. are we woken up by the nap? We're almost involuntarily pushed into by our exhaustion. Or how about in a meeting? <laughs> That's even more exciting. That's the worst. <laughs> that Sunglass. is the worst. That is so. So, what's the best way? The the very best way to take a nap. So it's funny because the way that we work now, I don't know what your office is like, but typically offices now are open plan, and even those that are fortunate enough to have an office, they tend to be glassy. So this is not a good way to take a nap because you. For, we're not sure why. I think it has to do with, you know, our animal instinct, but you need to be in a safe place. So he was talking actually about homeless people and how it's really so sad to see people sleeping on a park bench because it's not a safe environment to sleep in. And so they're probably not getting quality sleep 
um, and so are a little bit in a zone all the time. Um, but so you want to be in a, obviously in a cool place because you sleep best when it's like in the sixties. Um, you know, ideally you want to be, you want to be prone because when you're laying down, um, your body can, the, all those muscles can relax and your head's not going to fall over and wake you up. And you want to be in a dark, space that, you know, no one's watching you. So you feel safe. So a glassy office is not a great place. It used to be that, um, like being a madman or whatever, and, you know, you could just close the door, lay down on your couch to take a 15 minute nap and no, just say, you know, don't interrupt me for 15 minutes. And it was totally fine. That's kind of looked upon as lazy now. And it's not that way in all cultures. You know, in Japan, they're still okay with naps. The siesta is still a big thing in, in um, Spanish speaking countries. Um, and the way that we know that taking a mid afternoon nap is good, um, is that places like, um, China, when they industrialized, they forbade, um, they forbade the nap and the productivity didn't go up. So there's, there's this, they call it a sleep wake window that opens up in the afternoon and your it's a harmonic gate in your circadian rhythm and it just opens up. And, and so if you can find, uh, I don't know, a secret room in your office, where you can shut and lock the door, set your phone alarm for like 15, 20 minutes. And I, I promise you, you will feel refreshed. Even if you don't totally fall asleep, you'll feel refreshed. You can have a cup of coffee after. Um, and then you'll, you should be a hundred percent. And have you seen these places, Heidi, at the airport now around American airports where you can like basically go in and take a nap? Have you seen? Yes, I've seen these pods, right? Yeah, they're little pods, and they're trying to create that cool space where you can be prone, and it's dark, and you're by yourself. And they're they're like in fifteen minute increments, which is really kind of all you need. Yep, isn't that amazing? I mean, you could just do fifteen minutes, and you can feel much better. Well, I love what Doctor Dingy said. He said, "Quote: Being awake is like carrying a bag on your back. The longer you're awake, the more bricks you add." He says. And when you take a nap, you remove some of those bricks. And by the way, Dr. Gingies, that's the uh, professor you talked at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. His book is Sleep and Alertness, Chronobiological, Behavioral, and Medical Aspects of Napping. So he wrote a whole book on this. He wrote a whole book. Exactly. (laughs) Sitting at a bookstore near you, Heidi. Yeah, I'm sure. I think you have to buy it on Amazon used. I think it may be out of print, but he's written other books as well and lots of papers, but he's so into this subject and we talked for at least an hour. Um, but he was, we were asking, you know, is there a way that employers can, can help, uh, you know, their, their employees to have this built in? And he said, you know, employers are really all about their profits, their bottom line. And so, you know, I've seen it at, you've seen it at Google, you know, they have those pods. Yep. So some forward-thinking um, corporations do have that, but I do think there is still um, a stigma attached to taking a nap in the middle of the day. And if we can just somehow societally remove that stigma, we would have a much more productive society. We would be less hangry, grumpy, have nicer exchanges. Um, you know, work life would be better balanced. Um, and free coffee. Well, here at Our American Stories, the staff has free coffee and they can nap anytime, especially when we're doing the show. Heidi, thanks so much for joining us as always. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Go have your 15-minute nap after lunch. Oh, I will. And Heidi Mitchell, as always, the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories. And Jesse, I'm not sure what that music is, but it sounds like something off the Shaft or Superfly soundtrack. The Visioneers. Oh, The Visioneers. I love it. I love it. It sounds like something that our, our friend Trenton, uh, Quentin, not Trenton, Quentin Tarantino. It's very California. It is very California. Love it. Recently, we came across an article at the Wall Street Journal about a guy named Kevin who had established his own micronation within the state of Nevada. A micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but is not recognized by world governments or major international organizations. We just had to get to the bottom of this, bottom of this story, and there was no one else on the crew who could do a better job than Jesse. I'm just outside of a small town called Dayton, Nevada, just south of Reno, to visit with a man named Kevin Baugh. Kevin is what you might call a crazy person. You're about to find out why. You see, a long time ago, our friend Kevin here decided it might be a good idea to declare himself the president of Malasia. What is Malasia, you might ask? Well, let's ask His Excellency ourselves. Malasia is a micronation. Basically, it's a a tiny self-declared country. Uh, We sort of see it as a um, expression, a self-expression... Uh, creativity, kind of almost like an art project, but not quite. But also, we want to have everything in Malasia that a regular country would have. That's why we have our own post office, phone system, and so forth like that. Um, Malasia was originally founded uh, in 1977. Uh, My friend James and I, uh, we saw a movie called The Mouse That Roared uh, with Peter Sellers, and we were really struck by the imagination and creativity and the idea of that that movie. So we decided we wanted to have our own country, which was called the Grand Republic of Volstein. And he, at that time, and um, he was king, I was prime minister, but then he moved on, went to a different school, but I stayed with it over the years, and then once we obtained this property here uh, in northern Nevada, it was really natural to raise the flag and declare it to be a uh, property of our sovereign nation, Malasia. Now, the Republic of Malasia claims to be a sovereign, independent nation state, completely surrounded by the United States, and as a result, it's adopted a system of government recognizably similar in structure to that of a sovereign state. You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship, a self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would... Can someone move to Malasia or apply for citizenship? Well, actually, no, we do not um, allow other people to move in and become become citizens of Malasia. It's really kind of a family nation, if you will. Uh, We have a lot of people that would like to move here. Um, Surprisingly, actually, from the Middle East... We have a lot of inquiries, uh, people who want to come here on a regular basis. I'll get about a half a dozen a week of folks that want to move here. I think partially because they would like to come into the U.S. and see this is a way to get here. But Malasia is only open to uh, really our current citizens and our family members. Does the United States government care that you've declared yourself a sovereign nation? The U.S. has never really had a problem with Malasia, at least as far as I know. I'm sure they snoop around our website because they tend to do that. But at any rate, they don't really care what we do because we are... Uh, I guess, again, they see it sort of as a, you know, self-expression kind of thing, you know, personal freedom and private property and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. They leave us alone. Uh, We do pay taxes, but we call it foreign aid. So we give foreign aid to the U.S. to uh, help prop them up. And you've seen their roads, so you see they need all the help they can get. Uh, This guy is absolutely nuts, but I thought he seemed rather harmless. 
That is until he explained to me that he's been at war with East Germany for some time now. Well, the war with East Germany started back in 1983. Uh, it's really back in the midst of times because I don't honestly remember even starting this war. But at the time I was the prime minister, it was the Grand Public of Goldstein at that time, and I was the prime minister, and I was also serving with the U.S. Army in Europe back in the Cold War days. So every now and again, they would rost us up out of our sleep, and we'd have to jump in our tanks and go, you know, stand a, po a post because it was, you know, the time when you had to sort of do that. Uh, November of, of 83, uh, when I was still prime minister, I guess I was rusted out of my sleep one too many times, so I decided to declare war on East Germany. And I have a nice little war certificate hanging up on the wall right there. I think that's it. Anyway, um, then I forgot all about it. And then a few years ago, I was rooting through my records, and I pulled this thing out. And I said, well, that's kind of cute. That's neat. And I happened to do a little research and discovered that East Germany still exists in the form of a tiny island off the coast of Cuba. It's called Ernst Tailman Island, and it was given by Cuba to East Germany back in 1970-something, three, I think. Uh, Fidel Castro gave it to the, to the yeah. East Germany. Um, I guess it was sort of a symbolic thing, but essentially it became East German territory. They have a little statue, a statue there on there and so forth, and it was never addressed in the Unification Treaty. So it was sort of like one of those limbo kind of things. Uh, so I guess we're still at war with East Germany. At least that's how we're going with it. Now there's nobody on this island. It's uninhabited except for marine iguanas. So uh, <laughs> I guess those would be the only existing East Germans out there are marine iguanas. And because we can't go there, because we are still subject, unfortunately, to U.S. You know, restrictions of traveling to Cuba, we can't really you know, engage in peace with the marine iguanas there. And uh, so we will probably be at war with East Germany forever for as long as at least the embargo goes on, because we would like to go there someday. It looks like a really pretty place. Making peace with marine iguanas. I mean, look at this guy. He's dressed up like a war general, strutting around his property like Fidel Castro. And in the middle of all this, he somehow managed to land himself a wife. Or as he calls her, the first lady. I met the first lady uh, through uh, MySpace, which is really not that popular anymore, but it was a big thing back a few years ago. And uh, we had both been to the same concert, of all things. And I noticed her, she noticed me, kind of thing. And uh, we sort of started communicating that way. And she, I didn't really present myself as kind of like a, it's like a, it's like a separate thing. It was my civilian me, my non-president me, and then the president me. I didn't really present myself as the president, just as the guy down the road. But, you know, being a smart lady, and she is, uh, she Googled me and figured out <laughs> that I was, in fact, the president of the country. And she liked that. She thought it was a pretty cool idea. So she came into our relationship, uh, it's been almost five years now, came into our relationship knowing that I was the president of the country and very happy with it. And uh, she's had a good time with it ever since. What are some of like your house rules or laws, I guess you would call them? Uh, like all countries, Malasia uh, has its own customs uh, standards, and there are certain things that can't be brought into the country. Um, they are rather unique because we are a rather unique country. Uh, no walruses are allowed in the country. Uh, there was a cartoon strip called Bloom County a few years ago. And one of the opening splash things always was a, always a little sign next to a meadow under a tree. And one time it said, no walruses. And my, my uh, number two son and I thought that was pretty funny. So we put that on there. Uh, no catfish can be brought in the country. It's not like we have a problem with catfish here in Malazi. We're in the desert. But they're banned because we were going to be in FHM Magazine a few years ago. And FHM Magazine bumped us for an article about guys that catch catfish with their hands. They're called noodlers. So that's a couple things uh, that you can't bring. No plastic bags, bad for the environment. No incandescent light bulbs, also bad for the environment. 
Uh, because we are a unique country, we do have our own measurement system. It's called uh, the Cokins measurement system. And the uh, basic element that would probably apply to most folks is called the Norton. And this is a Norton. It's my hand. It's about seven inches long. And uh, if you ever have to measure something, you go somewhere, you can use your hands to measure. It's kind of convenient. But we really did that to be unique. We have our own time zone. Uh, we are 39 minutes ahead of Pacific time or 21 behind mountain, whichever way you want to be, yeah. be driving. And we, again, did that to be a little bit different. And just a few months after we adopted our own time zone, uh, President Chavez of Venezuela adopted his own, the late President Chavez, adopted his own time zone off by about 15 minutes or something like that. Now, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. Absolutely. So we kind of do our own thing. We have a good time with Malasia. Now, do you, do you always dress like that? I dress like a dictator. Well, I mean, because it's kind of a style and thing to do. But anyway, uh, I wanted to be a little bit different. There are a lot of micronations out there, and almost everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a duke or an emperor or something along that line. And I wasn't really feeling like I was royalty. It wasn't my thing. So wanting to be different, we deliberately uh, adopted this is a dictatorship. Malasia is a dictatorship. Kind of handy when I'm sort of the head of the household anyway. It's a family country. And so uh, and we have, you know, have a good time. It's a, it's a benign, benevolent dictatorship. It's a family country, he says. Kevin Baugh, one of a kind, the micro-nation of Malasia. Look them up, pay them a visit. Your family might be a little upset and confused, especially if they're expecting Disneyland and you took them here. But that's the way it goes sometimes. This is Our American Stories. Uh, thank you for that, Jesse. He has his own time zone. We should start that here because I'm always 15 minutes late. I should have my own time zone. And and by the way, was he as was he like a, a just a as crazy off oh, the yeah, air? Pretty much. Just he, bad. Exactly what you heard. Bad out there crazy. Yeah. Nice guy though. Hey, that's what we do here in Our American Stories. And if you know somebody who's a dictator of his own nation, if you're a dictator of your own nation, call, share your story. If you want to be. This is Our American Stories. Kevin. The dictator, the head honcho of Malasia, somewhere in northern Nevada. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about music, sports, marriage, work, history, every sphere of American life. And we especially love stories about human freedom and what happens when it's trampled and when it's allowed to flourish. And National Review's Jay Nordlinger wrote just such a story, and it was fantastic. And so we asked him to record it for us. Here's Jay. Article 39 of the Cuban Constitution states the following. Artistic creativity is free as long as its content is not contrary to the revolution. Danilo Maldonado Machado, also known as El Sexto, doesn't obey. He's a Cuban street artist and human rights activist. He has been in and out of prison many times. In 2014, He took two pigs and painted names on them, Fidel and Raul. He was referring to his country's brother dictators, of course. Fidel has since died. Raul is in charge. When he goes, he may well be succeeded by his son, Alejandro. Maldonado had been inspired by Animal Farm, 
Orwell's novella of 1945. Into the day when pigs own and operate farms everywhere! Obviously, his pigs routine earned him a prison sentence. Maldonado is the very image of the street artist rebel. Tall and thin, funky haircut, tattoos, jewelry, the works. He was born on April 1st, 1983. Like all Cubans, Danilo was propagandized as soon as he reached school age. He and his classmates chanted slogans such as, We will be like Che, meaning Che Guevara, of course. When they learned to read, they didn't see sentences like, See Spot Run, they saw, Fidel is in the plaza, or Fidel is happy. And of course, TV, radio, and newspapers conveyed hardly anything but propaganda. Danilo liked to draw, and something strange happened when he was nine. He drew a picture of Fidel Castro in his army fatigues, but with a monkey head. When his mother saw it, she was horrified. She took it from him, threw it away, and admonished him never to draw anything like that again. The child was taken aback. His mother had always liked his drawings before. Why was she so afraid of this one simple drawing? Her son told me, that started a little revolution in my mind. When he was 18, he was conscripted into the military like everyone else. On the base, he saw things he had never seen before. Goods, supplies, you know, stuff. He stole some of it. For this, he was sentenced to six years in prison. He served three. When he got out, he had an urge to satirize, to satirize every government campaign, to puncture the atmosphere of fear and propaganda. That's how he got his nickname, El Sexto. The government was hailing the Cuban Five, as they're known, a group of five spies in the United States. The government was constantly celebrating these men as heroes. So Maldonado, tongue-in-cheek, started calling himself El Sexto, meaning the Sixth. He also spray-painted graffiti in the capital city, Havana, signing them with his new nickname. In one instance, he painted this statement, Peace love without fear. This caused a buzz. Fear is the ruling emotion in Cuba, as in police states everywhere. On a bus, Maldonado overheard people talking about him. Who is El Sexto, they said. Also, he overheard police talking about him. They were vowing to get these guys, these guys who were waging this graffiti campaign. They thought that El Sexto had to be more than one person. For years, Maldonado has had support from ordinary people, usually stated in whispers. He has support even among policemen, but most of the agents do their job, which includes harassing Maldonado, keeping him out of public spaces, and confiscating his property. Once, Maldonado wore a t-shirt with the image of Laura Poyan on it. She was the leader of the Ladies in White, the human rights group in Cuba. She died in 2011 under suspicious circumstances. The police ripped the shirt off Maldonado. They also took away his art materials. So, as he puts it, he used the one medium left to him, his body. He acquired a tattoo of Poyan and of Oswaldo Paya, 
another democracy leader in Cuba, killed by the regime in 2011. Maldonado, like the people painted on his body, is one of those irrepressible dissidents. Today, the United States of America is changing its relationship with the people of Cuba. In December 2014, President Obama announced his opening to Cuba. If international media were going to be paying more attention to Cuba, Maldonado thought it was a good time for an imaginative, daring performance. His inspiration was Animal Farm. Read it to me. Which depicts a place where, quote, All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. More equal than others? Ever since it was written, people trapped in totalitarian societies have been amazed by Animal Farm, by its accuracy above all. In Cuba, Maldonado took his two pigs, females as it happened, and gave them those famous names, Fidel and Raul. His plan was to take them to Central Park in Havana and put on a show. Rebellion en la Granja, or Rebellion on the Farm, which is how Orwell's novella is known in Spanish. Maldonado knew he would be arrested and imprisoned. His aim was to show the world that freedom of expression in Cuba was denied. He never made it to the park. They arrested him on the way. Maldonado was charged with disorderly conduct, but he was never given a trial. He was sentenced to three years. Three years for two pigs, as his supporters put it. The prison was Valle Grande, where he was confined with common criminals as dissidents are in Cuba. Amnesty International declared Maldonado a prisoner of conscience. There came a time when the prisoners did not have water, and that led Maldonado to stage a hunger strike. He also had this thought. It was my activism that got me in here, and it will be activism that gets me out. He considered his hunger strike a kind of performance art. He went without food for 24 days. Was he prepared to die? Yes, he says, although he did not think it would come to that. He figured he was too well known for the regime to let die. The regime wouldn't want the publicity. Maldonado's hunger strike garnered international attention and led to international pressure on the Castro dictatorship. They relented, releasing Maldonado on October 20th, 2015. His jailers had some parting words for him. Stay out of trouble. He refuses. He wants to, quote, stretch the limits of what's possible. Why? He answered the way dissidents usually do when I asked them this question. He said... I don't know. In the past, Maldonado tried to live a normal life, but found he couldn't. He must strike little artistic blows against the dictatorship, or try to. His goal is to, quote, break the pattern of brainwashing in people. He wants to counter the government's incessant propaganda. He says he thinks like a publicist. What can I do to catch people's attention and wake them up a little? He says that communism is like slavery, quote, People are told to be grateful for what little they're given by their masters. They're also told that life would be wretched for them elsewhere or under a different system. I asked him, why do they let you travel? He said, I don't know. And then with a grin, maybe they think I'll never come back. Maldonado was more trouble to them at home than abroad. Whatever the dangers in Cuba... He has no desire to go into exile because, quote, 
I want to be part of change in Cuba. I see America and the American dream, and I want to implant that spirit in Cuba to have a Cuban dream, which is freedom. I asked him a standard question. Is there something you wish people could know, especially outsiders, foreigners? He had an immediate answer. Che Guevara was a murderer. He wasn't a hero. Also, Raul and Fidel are murderers, not legitimate authorities, not legitimate heads of state. They're there by force, not by the will of the people. Maldonado flew from Havana to Paris. Sitting next to him was a man wearing a Che shirt, a foreigner, probably a Frenchman. Maldonado wanted to explain to the man about Guevara, but they did not have a language in common. Maldonado says he can excuse Cubans who wear Che shirts. They've been propagandized all their lives. He has a much harder time excusing men and women from free societies. Before he and I left each other, I told El Sexto that I considered him something of a miracle. When I was growing up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, the cool kids like him, the artists and rebels with funky hair, tattoos, jewelry, and so on, they wore Che shirts. They were pro-Castro. And here, the coolest kid on the block is El Sexto, who is anti-Castro, pro-democracy, anti-Che. I said to him, I'm so glad you exist. He grinned. And we're grinning here, almost ear to ear, everyone in the studio. And thanks so much for that writing, Jay. And what a story, and what an American story, bringing American values of freedom and love to a place, well, run by dictators for the last half century, even more. This is Lee Habib, El Sexto's story, here on Our American Story. Yeah. 